Uh, Mikey, you're a pillar of secular AA. Thank you for speaking at Tus Nua today. We're massive fans of Oh My God and all you do. If it wasn't for you, Kat, and the guys, most of us wouldn't have a clue. Cheers for all your service. Speak as long as you want. We love what you say. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mikey. Take as long as you need, sir. And uh, yeah, you're awesome. I'm going to mute. Thank you. Wow. That was a, I've never had a limerick. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, hi, my name is Mikey. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm also a drug addict, uh, a sex addict. Uh, I am a compulsive shopper. In fact, I qualify for every 12 step fellowship there is with the exception of Gamblers Anonymous, but I bet you a hundred dollars that I could if I ever won anything. Um, so I've been asked to, uh, to speak and uh, it's, it's an incredible honor. I'm not a really good speaker um, for whatever reason, because I uh, have a little mental issue going on. Uh, you know, the real ADHD, not the, I can't study, I need Adderall ADHD, but the, the real stuff, uh, it's difficult for me to keep uh, focused. But uh, my job, I think, is to um, help you in some way stay sober. And with the life that I've had, um, I don't deserve sobriety. Uh, this is something that uh, anything that I do past when I bottomed out is gravy. Um, I was not supposed to live past 18. Um, I didn't have any plans of doing that. Um, and, and AA has, has given me a new perspective uh, on life. It's, it's given me more than I could possibly give back. So this is my, uh, this is all gravy for me. And if I can help somebody figure that out, that would be great. Um, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what kind of kid I was. I am, a, <clears throat> uh, um, so I had a lot of things going on. I have uh, mental health issues. I have uh, a lot of sexual abuse in a lot of alcohol use as a kid. Um, the the mental health thing is was uh, first and foremost just because uh, I I had well I have uh, schizoaffective disorder, and at the time when I was a young kid, about six, uh, my, I had a horrible tick. I would I would go like this constantly. And uh, my parents didn't know what to do about it. So they sent me to psychiatrists, but they didn't tell me that they were sending me to psychiatrists for anything specific. It was just like, well, what's wrong with Mikey? And uh, they put me on Haldol when I was six years old. And Haldol is the drug that they gave me at the last psych hospital I was in to knock me out. So you can imagine what a six-year-old on Haldol looks like. Um, from then, they put me on Ritalin, and I've been on some kind of uh, stimulant ever since. Uh, I, I am absolutely medicated, uh, medic medicine dependent. I've been on antipsychotics and atypical antipsychotics my entire life. Even in the worst of my addiction, I took my meds because without them, uh, life is pretty terrifying. Um, when I was a kid, I was... Uh, kind of tormented by voices. And I didn't know that everybody didn't have that. Um, I was very much a loner. 
Um, I, I was, I was too weird to be popular, but not weird enough to be, uh, bullied. Um, so I was kind of the invisible kid and all of the, the things that went on, um, my family and doctors, they tried to figure out what was going on. Uh, but again, they never told me that they just kind of like, I was always in doctors. I was having neuro tests. I was in play therapy. I was in uh, emotional health classes, but no one would tell me that directly. So anyway, uh, in, in my story, uh, sex addiction is, is, uh, pretty, pretty key. And I'll tell you how that started. Um, there is a book called everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. And I don't know if you've read this book or have heard about this book, but it wasn't very nice to the LGBT, uh, community. <laughs> um, they said that, uh, lesbians were witches. Um, gay men will never have a, a, a relationship. Uh, they have sex in bathrooms. Um, they're disgusting and God hates them. And uh, it quoted a couple Bible verses. And I, I was, I don't know, maybe 14, 13, 14. And I looked them up and uh, it, it said that basically, you know, gay was wrong. But I, I knew I wasn't bad, and I absolutely knew I was not choosing to be this way. I tried not to be that way. So that's where my belief in God just disappeared. Um, and it, seriously, it was, uh, if this is a, a perfect, omnipotent God, and I know that part is wrong, I know that part, I'm not a bad person, then the whole thing must wash out. And that's the last time I really thought about it. My uh, my parents took me to church. They were really involved in the Catholic church. They would go three times a week. They would drag me with them. Uh, but I never, I just ignored it. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't an issue. It's just, I really didn't believe when I look back, I remember like not being confirmed. I don't know how I got off on this track, but anyway, I just, I just didn't, uh, I just didn't buy it. So it never was really an issue. Um, but I read that about having sex in bathrooms. And uh, the first time that actually happened, there was a guy, he was 42 years old, I was 13. He picked me up in a, um, in a uh, locker room at a theme park that I was at and took me to his place and told me that we weren't doing anything wrong and now I see that I was kind of raped, but I didn't really, I thought I was just having sex and that's just the way it happens. Um, that, that went on for a long time. I would sneak out of the house. Um, my, my parents eventually found out about it. It stopped, but they didn't tell me anything. They didn't say that they had done anything. I found out later that uh, he was in jail and all that, but none of that con concerned me. Uh, I was kept completely in the dark. And, and that kind of behavior was my escape. Uh, I didn't, you know, it's one thing to feel like nobody likes you, but when no one really does like you uh, as a kid, that's pretty traumatic. Um, as far as the uh, continuing with that sex addiction, I would go, there was this playground that was near my house that had a, a public bathroom 
and I would swing on the swing set and guys would come to that bathroom. I would go in and have oral sex or whatever. And then they'd leave and I'd get back on the swings and wait for the next one. And that went on pretty much every day for two or three years. Um, my parents didn't know, or if they did, they didn't make any kind of, uh, they didn't, I didn't know that. I don't think they did. Um, but it was pretty, it, it was exciting because I mean, it was, it was absolutely, uh, I loved it. I mean, it was, it was sex and it was exciting and I felt wanted. Uh, I felt like people wanted to, for however short, wanted to be with me. And that was a wonderful feeling for someone that is uh, tortured by voices and no one likes and is, my childhood is the worst part of my entire life. Uh, I, I have been through a lot of shit, but nothing is as bad as those formative years of being, uh, of being alone, truly, truly alone. I would think about death constantly. I would, I would think about my funeral and who would come and then, and then, no one would come and, and uh, it was it was pretty bad. Anyway, um, I found alcohol uh, because I was watching uh, like I wouldn't I wouldn't eat with the family or anything. I would eat after everyone had gone to sleep and I'd sneak in and get like raw hot dogs and stuff like that. And I would watch uh, late night shows. Uh, usually what they were those, uh, I don't know if anyone has them or have heard of them. They're like, uh, after school specials where they talk about the drug kids and, uh, how they're rabble rousers and then they get help and they're, you know, but the rabble rousing phase, I really liked, I, I was, I didn't get the message correctly. I thought that the cool kids were the ones that drank and smoked weed and all that. So I did what I could to emulate that. And I remember going into my dad's liquor cabinet, who was also an alcoholic, and uh, I got drunk. And the very first time I got drunk, it was on Jack Daniels, and I blacked out. Uh, the next morning, I woke up in a pool of vomit on my floor and thought that that was the best thing that had ever happened to me. I was... Uh, I was sick, but but uh, that feeling the night before of laughing, like really laughing at nothing, what it, it I hadn't laughed in a long time, and it, it felt really good. Um, so I was addicted to that pretty much instantly, and I would fill the whatever I would take out, I would uh, uh, make sure I put back in water, and then switch to another alcohol. Uh, and my dad would just drink them and then refill the cabinet. So it wasn't like I was, you know, getting caught or anything. And uh, that went on for a while. But but the the toll that the sex addiction had taken and the um, the the mental health things, I uh, wrote a suicide note to a, a youth pastor, actually, that I had a crush on um, saying that I wanted to. I would rather be dead than have to live in this uh, hell anymore. And my parents found it and put me in my first psychiatric hospital. They tricked me. They said, oh, we're just going to visit. We're just going to look around. Why don't you pack a bag? <laughs> you don't have to stay, but you know, you might want to get a shirt. And uh, I went and they said, bye. And uh, I was in my first psych hospital and I'm going to kind of rush through this. The, uh, that psych hospital turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. 
Um, I was on the adolescent unit when I when I went there. It was scary as fuck. The the uh, they put me in a room with gates on the window and they said, okay, uh, your roommate's going to come in and he's, he's a little aggressive. If he, if he tries to hurt you, there's a bell that you can, there's a thing you can push. And it was by his bed. And I was just terrified, terrified. And it turns out that he was there because his father drove him up to a bridge, said, this is your fault and jumped over the bridge and left him in the car. And he killed himself. And and that was why he was in there, because anyway, it was a, it was an interesting place. Everyone had a really interesting story about why they were there. Uh, we were all tortured souls and we bonded and uh, they threw me a surprise party for my 15th birthday. And I was in heaven. I, I had friends. We, we were in these groups and we would relate uh just on these levels that sometimes you know how you're in a meeting and you just nod and you're like yes i get that i get i get you i get you that was uh something that i had never experienced before and it was wonderful Uh, i smoked my first joint there which came out of somebody's butt because they uh had to sneak in onto the unit and that's how they did it (laughs) so i had a butt joint for the first time um after I made good friends there. Um, after that, they didn't want to send me home. So I went to a boarding school and the alcohol use went crazy. Uh, I, and this is embarrassing, but I got a, <laughs> we would go out on a pass to, uh, they would all take us to do laundry and uh, sometimes to the mall. And I would go with these two uh, people and we would, uh, she was looked old, so they, she would go get alcohol and we would drink and get drunk. And uh, it, it, was, it was great, but uh, she gave me a blowjob in the back of, a, of the bus. And all the K through uh, eighth grade were in the front of the bus and all the ninth through 12th was in the back of the bus. And here I am drunk, oh, drunk, you're all biting, get your teeth out there. And they kind of uh, didn't like that. Um, They gave me discipline and um, they gave me discipline and uh, I got super, super, super depressed. And when I say depressed, I, I, I mean clinically depressed. I'm not just having a bad day. I mean, constant thoughts of suicide. Uh, I decided that the best thing to do was to check out. And it wasn't really a suicide attempt uh, as much as a cry for help because I told someone after I did it because I changed my mind. Uh, But I drank lighter fluid and Comet. Um, I absolutely wanted to check out when I did it. Um, And I don't know if you've ever uh, swallowed lighter fluid before, but for at least two months, you burp that stuff up. And they can't really do anything either uh, to save you because it can come back up and give you chemical pneumonia. So anyway, I went to a second psych hospital because of that. They kicked me out of the boarding school, uh, because they found out that I was cheating, which is why I have really good grades. Um, the, the second, like I went to go apply for a college or, uh, like a, a tech school here. And they're like, Oh, you have really good grades. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, you have like from sixth, seventh and eighth grade, you have all A's. And I'm like, yeah, I 
cheated, but I never thought that they'd let me keep those grades. Anyway, long story short, a um, lot of a uh, lot of stuff happened in that uh, psych hospital. Um, I was in there for nine and a half months. I was on suicide watch for about six of those months. Um, I was one of those stories that they told you think you were depressed. Oh my gosh. When Mikey came in, we, every day, they had to watch me shower. They had to watch me take a crap. Uh, it was, it was one-on-one psych, uh, stuff from the time I got in there to about six months. Um, and I, again, made friends and started to come out of my shell again. And, uh, I would go out on pass and I would come back drunk. Um, so they uh, sent me to my first AA meeting. And this was my experience with AA. It was 1986. I'm 50 now. So that was when I was 16 years old. And it was the old school AA where they're smoking in the, you know, sit down and shut up. You don't know anything, blah, 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 blah all that old school crap, um, which helped a lot of people. But uh, when I went to my first meeting, uh, I looked up at the wall and I read the steps and I saw the capital P and I knew from Catholic school that that meant a deity. I didn't even get to the word God. I just saw the capital P and I'm like, okay, I know what this is about. I'm sitting there. Everybody is older. They're like ancient 30 years old, 40 years old at the time, I think is just absolutely ridiculous. I'm 16. Uh, people would come up and say, ah, spilled more liquor than you ever drank kind of stuff, which, by the way, don't tell a, a, a kid that because I felt like I didn't qualify uh, for a long time. Um, but I was sitting there in that meeting telling myself, this is fucking bullshit. And somebody shared, they were talking about like their third DUI and I didn't even have a driver's license yet. So I was comparing. But then somebody said, you know, I felt like I, I can feel alone in a crowded room. And my ears picked up, perked up, and I heard that. I, I heard the um, what he had said, and people started not talking about steps, but they talked about how they felt like they were on another planet, and they were just waiting for the spaceship to come and take them to the real planet, and uh, how when they would drink, they would feel taller, they would they would be funnier. Uh, what I didn't hear was the crash, but I, I uh, related on an emotional level. And when I left the psych hospital, I decided that I would stay sober, which lasted until the next day when I went to a, uh, now I'm 16, I can't legally drink. However, I went to a uh, wedding that was on a ship. She was marrying the captain and they brought us out into the international waters and anyone can drink. <clears throat> so I drank, uh, I, I had a, a forceful sexual relationship uh, incident with someone, which I'm not thrilled about uh, and have tried to make amends for. Um, <clears throat> after that, I got sober again. My parents said the best thing for us is to move out of the state now that you have friends. And we went to Connecticut and I, I got sober in old school AA and I was sober for about a year and a half, maybe even two years. And I did everything they told me. I cleaned ashtrays. That was the thing that everybody had to do is clean ashtrays. Um, I, I 
heard about steps. I tried to do them. Uh, I did get a sponsor. That sponsor molested me. Uh, Like I said, I've, my AA experience is a little weird. Um, That didn't obviously work out, Um, but I did do service. I, I tried to do everything they told me and I had about a year. I wasn't particularly happy, you know, uh, but I, I did stay sober and uh, I went to school uh, and because I had these great grades, I actually had a whole year of basically doing nothing. Um, anyway, this is off the topic. Um, I, I graduated, but I got kicked out of the high school at the same time. Uh, I wasn't allowed back on property. Uh, I also uh, got high for the first time, and this is where it switches from alcohol to drugs. Uh, Once I uh, found drugs, alcohol just didn't do it anymore. Um, I wanted something more powerful. And I was a a liquor drinker. I I drank to obliviate myself, even when I didn't mean to, which is really how most of this drinking happened. I would intend to get tipsy that two drink, three drink kind of feeling where everything's great, but I just could not stop. I couldn't, I just couldn't stop there. Um, And I would, you know, it was, it was bad. Uh, But then I found drugs and I won't go into much of that, uh, but I, I was tripping on acid every three days. I would do every drug that would come my way. um, And I really, really, uh, kind of went crazy with that. This whole time, the sex addiction is still going on, still going, uh, you know, depraved and, and, uh, uh, not, not too, not like it got at the end, but it was, it was pretty bad. Um, I got a job, um, at the Disney store in, uh, Connecticut and I'd always wanted to work at Disney, always wanted to work at Disney. Specifically, I wanted to be a Disney character, but uh, I was in merchandise and I loved it. It was awesome. I got totally obsessed with it, but I got caught smoking weed um, on my break. And they said, you can either terminate or go into treatment. So I decided to go into treatment and I'm skipping a lot of stuff here, but I decided to go into treatment And in that treatment center, uh, at the end of it, and of course, I institutionalize very well. If you haven't figured that out yet, I love being in psych wards. I love being in uh, uh, any kind of detainment. I love it because they tell you what to do and you just do it. You can be a a total screw up, uh, but as long as you just do what they tell you to do and you eat when they tell you to eat, everything is kind of stress-free. I mean, it's, and you work on emotion and, and it was wonderful. Uh, that was back when psych hospitals used to be like that. My later psych hospitals were not like that, but, uh, anyway, they gave me a choice. I could go to Hazelden in Minnesota, soda, or I could go to Fort Lauderdale and, and go to St. Francis. I'm like, I'll take St. Francis. And, uh, I went down to St. Francis. I, for somehow, transferred to a Disney store down there. I still don't really get that, but I kept my job and, uh, Fort Lauderdale, my experience with Fort Lauderdale was not Fort Lickerdale, 
Fort Lauderdale was nothing but sobriety. And I went to this, uh, and it's funny, I think back now, if I had gone here now, I probably would have had a problem. But I went to a, a halfway house called St. Francis, and they had monk music that played in the corridors. The that kind of stuff. And uh, we had to do Vespers at night. We had to go to all these prayer things. But I didn't care. I was meeting people that to this day, I still are my best friends. Uh, I met people in sobriety. And the, the sobriety is amazing in South Florida. Uh, you can throw a rock in any direction and you'll hit somebody in the head that's in rehab or, or uh, in the program. Um, I went to I went to my first Sex Addicts Anonymous meetings and I would sleep with the other people there or not sleep with them. But, uh, you know, fuck um, the uh, the experience I had in Fort Lauderdale was amazing. And it was that taste of sobriety where you get on that pink cloud. And uh, it was probably the most amazing years of my life. Um, which, which was hard because when I relapsed three and a half years later, oh, I will say, uh, the very first time I went to Rocky Horror Picture Show was in, uh, Florida. I moved to Connecticut and I was in Rocky Horror Picture Show for, uh, years there. And when I got to St. Francis on Saturday nights, they would let me go to, be in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that was my outlet for my badness. Uh, I, I've skipped some of the crime stuff. I loved crime. I loved, I loved drug deals. I loved, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I had this bad bone in my body that I needed to uh, exercise. And Rocky was one of those ways that I did that. I definitely got a, a hooked on it, but I don't know why that came into my head, but it was definitely uh, uh, something that uh, was good for me. Anyway, I met friends. It was wonderful. And I felt like I finally had a handle on sobriety and I was going to go to Disney world and I was going to get that job at Disney that I always wanted. So I left Orlando, transferred up to, or I left uh, Fort Lauderdale, transferred up to Orlando, got a job. And, uh, within a month, I think I went to one meeting it was a transient meeting where it was all tourists and people that were, I mean, I think they got sober with Moses. It, very, very old. Uh, they called them old timers back then. Not now they call them long timers, but uh, they were old timers. And, and I went to one meeting and I'm like, oh, this is AA in Orlando. I guess I won't be going to meetings anymore. And then I saw an ad for a wine cooler for Bartles and Jane wine cooler. And I thought to myself, I've never had a wine cooler before. Maybe I should have a wine cooler. That can't be bad. And within, I don't know, three months, I was snorting Coke off a bathroom floor. Uh, it, it's uh, my drug addiction kind of resurfaced. It didn't get worse necessarily. It just resurfaced. Um, I got a job. And long story short, I finally got a job as a Disney character. And I was goofy, tigger height. So I did all the tall characters and that was a dream come true. Uh, I am emotionally, uh, at that time, I was definitely not emotionally uh, uh, old. And I, it was, it, I would get dressed up and play. That was my job, get dressed up and just 
absolutely have the best time in the world. All of a sudden you're famous. People just go crazy. And I was really, really good at it because I put my heart and soul into it. Um, I'm going to speed this up here. So uh, the sex addiction is still going on, um, but I was so happy. And I decided uh, at a special event to take a pie and throw it in a supervisor's face. And I got fired. And that was the most tortured time I think I've ever had. I was so distraught. And uh, that is where I met crystal meth. And uh, my crystal meth uh, career is what brought me to my knees uh, in, in many senses of that word. Um, I do not, uh, let me, let me, let me just tell you about getting high. Cause I got my job back as goofy again and then got fired later. But anyway, I got, and that was for dragging Donald Duck across the floor, but I went to characters and I would smoke weed and then do goofy. And everyone's like, Oh my God, you're such a good goofy. I'm like, Oh yeah, I am. And then I would like, uh, when the meth came, I would do meth and do Tigger and bounce, 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 bounce. Everyone's like, oh my God, you're such a good Tigger. I'm like, yeah. Um, but then it got really, really, really bad. Uh, really bad. Uh, meth was connected directly to uh, my sex addiction. Uh, every time I did meth, the idea was to have sex for as long as I could with whoever I could. Um, I've turned into something called a bug chaser, which is somebody that does not have HIV and looks for people that do, do have HIV. Um, I don't know how I survived that. Um, and that lasted into sobriety. But uh, the thing with meth and sex is that it gets very, very dark. And uh, the, the way, if you want to not pay for drugs, you sleep with really, really terrible people. Uh, and, and you get it for free. They're the ones that have the best drugs because the only way they get laid is by giving out those drugs. So uh, I went to depths that I'll hear people say like a sex experience that they had and that it was the worst, worst thing that ever happened to them. It was so dark. And I'm like, that's like Tuesday afternoon for me. I was, I would stay up for days and days and days and go to these just horrible places. And I loved it at the time. Now I look back and some of it was weird. Some of it I still think is kind of neat, but uh, I would get into things that I just uh, never would have thought on my own. I had a, I had a sir that kind of ran my life for a while, which was uh, great until that was not great. Uh, I don't really even know uh, where to go with this, but uh, it took me to um, it took me to my bottom. Uh, and I, I mean, uh, I had had lots of bad things happen, but there's a moment where you have that emotional bottom where you hit, uh, you hit a wall that you just can't scale anymore. Uh, the, the bottom is rock bottom. And I, I hate when people say I have a high bottom or a low bottom. When you hit bottom, you're at the bottom. It doesn't matter if it's uh, this high or this high. It is, you can't go any lower. 
it, there's no such thing as a high bottom or a low bottom. You might have your car still or, or your home or a relationship, but you're still at the bottom. We don't come in here whistling Dixie and, oh, you know, I, I decided to come to AA. Uh, you are at the bottom. And I this is one of my pet peeves is when people say, oh, I had a high bottom or a low bottom. I had a pretty uh, traumatic bottom, I would say. Um, I, uh, I had... Okay, this is this is an interesting story. So I had um, tie, I had uh, been kicked out of my apartment for running a sex club, uh, which involved the SWAT team, and I can tell you all about that uh, some other time. But it was a, a wild one of those on TV, uh, fucking just drug, sex, cops, guns. It was fucking awesome, but it was horrible at the time. But it was it was exciting. Uh, and I was addicted to exciting. I loved exciting. Um, anyway, I got kicked out there. So I holed up in a hotel that a trick had uh, um, paid for uh, one of those, uh, you know, stay suites that you stay for weeks or you pay for the week. Anyway, I had, uh, I had, I was still having tricks over, you know, constantly. And uh, I got tied up somehow. And I, was so high that I took my nails and I just ripped my chest apart. I still have little uh, scars from that, but I just dug into myself. It was a drug crazed thing. And I had somebody come over and here I am bleeding tied up to a, a chair, which was consensual and I did it, but they didn't think that was very cool. So they picked me up and took me to a hospital and I got Baker acted, which is uh, Florida's version of involuntary uh, commitment. Uh, in California, it's a 5150. In New York, I think it's a, I'm not even sure what it is in New York. Um, but it's an involuntary admission. And I, I don't remember any of it. What I do remember is waking up in, uh, they took me to the regular hospital, dumped me off. I was transferred to a psych hospital. And the psych hospital, um, they kicked me out and, and this was, this was kind of where I was really circling the drain. Um, everything I turned or, or everything I touched turned to shit. Uh, I could not manage my own life. I, I just, I couldn't. Um, and they, they released me and I didn't understand why. And I, I said, the only person I know is my dealer and that's who's coming to pick me up. And I have a plan to hurt myself. I knew what to say to stay. What I didn't say is I didn't have insurance, uh, which is what they assumed. So uh, I was kicked out, I think, because I didn't have insurance. But uh, I took that very personally. And uh, when I got picked up, my dealer uh, he brought me home as a mess. Uh, I had been kicked out of the hotel, so he let me stay in his uh, house. And then I went over to this other dealer to buy weed, and he had set up an intervention for me. And I don't know if you know what it's like to think you're going to buy weed and your parents are there, uh, but it was quite quite the, uh, the shock. And uh, they had a little intervention and, uh, you know, my parents were told a little bit about what was going on and they were shocked. One of the, one of the things that, uh, 
that I have as far as a regret. Um, and that part in the book where it says we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. There's a lot of things in my past that I, I wish I had done differently. I don't know if I regret them in the way that the book says, but I definitely regret some of my decisions. And this was one of them. My parents came to visit me and uh, I was running this sex uh, dungeon type place with two of my friends, which was a, a drug slash sex slash money thing. And they came over and I did a drug deal right in front of them. Uh, I, it was, they drove home and they said, we have to prepare. They, they looked at plots. They, uh, they talked to lawyers about what to do. Uh, they were, they were going to lose their kid and they knew it. Um, anyway, uh, I didn't stay sober, uh, a week later, I really hit that everything is bad. Now Now the dealer is mad at me. My parents don't talk to me now. Uh, it's only been a week and I've fucked everything up. So I did the last bit of meth uh, that I could. I think I, anyway. Um, and I walked into the emergency room of Sand Lake Hospital and I told the person, I said, I am coming down off of crystal meth and I'm going to need you to tie me to a bed because this is, I want to get clean, but I can't do this alone. I can't just do it. I need to be actually monitored. And they're like, well, you just can't just come in here and do that. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. And I called my psychiatrist and I, I got the warm line. And I said, do you have my file there? It's the biggest one that is on that shelf. Okay, can you tell them who I am? And I like, handed the phone to the, to the poor nurse. And they're like, well, you can't just do that. And I looked her in the eye and I said, do you see that kid over there that has that broken arm? Yes. Well, if you don't let me in and tie me to a fucking bed, I'm going to break his other arm. And security, they called. I, I was a lot more obnoxious, but I got locked in this uh, uh, bed where they pull the curtain and there's a, a lot of bad stories that night. I got into a real fight with the guy next to me who said I was a, uh, he was in there because of a DUI and I was in there because of me being crazy. And he, uh, was saying I was the bad one. Anyway, uh, long story short that I had pissed off the, um, I had pissed off the nurse staff so much that uh, they wouldn't give me anything to come down with. So I was tied in four points and I, I kind of scrooched down and I peed on myself, drank the pee because that's how you can continue a high if you're on any drug, your first piss is the one that has all the chemical in it. So I drank that and I got to the next morning and they were gonna take me to the psych ward again. And I went in the bathroom, I filled up a cup, drank that, stuck a lighter up my ass because I knew that you had, a, um, I, I knew that you couldn't, you could smoke at this one, but you couldn't light your own cigarette. So in my haze, I thought, well, I'll just take a lighter. And so I went to the hospital again and they were not going to give me anything to come down. And that I freaked out and uh, I coded myself on purpose and they're, they're going to uh, put me out They've got me over the restraints and he comes in with the shot 
And I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And he goes, turn around. I go, wait. And I pulled the lighter out of my ass. And he's like, no, I don't know why I went into that story, but it was one of that stands out anyway. And I, I uh, talked to a, a psych nurse that worked at that thing. And I told her that story and she goes, that was you. They like tell that as a little, you want a crazy person story? So uh, I woke up two days later and <clears throat> I am sitting in my bed and I'm, I'm saying, now this time I want to stop. That was it. I had hit that point where I, I wanted to stop or I wanted someone to stop me, I think was more of it. I had hit a wall, but I knew that, like I have an on off switch that once you turn it on, you can't turn it off. It doesn't, you have to just run its course. It doesn't turn off. Uh, it's just this switch. And I uh, was waiting and I remember a doctor came in with a nurse. And if you know anything about psych wards, when they come in with a second person, it's to be a witness. And I said, okay, uh, where am I going? And they said, uh, we're gonna let you go. We're gonna discharge you. And there's a, I, I, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what I had just heard. And I said, what do you mean? I, I want, I'm a drug addict that wants help. And they said, you are, have been diagnosed as a sociopath. And unfortunately there's no treatment for sociopaths. Uh, I can give you the number for NA uh, and AA, but we don't have a treatment plan for people that just there's no help for you and or that we can offer and there's a part in the big book where he's talking about uh, I think Carl Jung says that the gates of hell slammed with a clang I heard that clang at that moment my whole life was over um, I knew what my next step was it was suicide um, that was the only thing that was uh, that was going to fix this and I remember uh, I called my dad and my dad got on the phone with them and said, not only will I sue you, but I will, uh, I will pay for anything that he needs. Oh, well now we can help you. Um, let's, let's put you in, uh, this place, uh, Crossroads, the center for co-occurring disorders. And I went to, um, I went to this Crossroads. I'm kind of speeding here. Um, I went to Crossroads. And I went to uh, Crossroads and I immediately, because I was still in the meth psychosis, I thought people were going in and out of my room and taking things. And I had a big thing to say about that, about how terrible they were. And uh, I made quite the fuss. And uh, that night, and this is like the first night, I had these two guys come over from, and I don't know how this happens to me. The two guys came across the hall into my room and started preaching Jesus to me and, and said how I'm going to hell because of Leviticus and this thing. And I said, I wasn't mad. I just went, oh, really? Let's look at that Bible. Let me open to Leviticus 18. Oh my God, you have a tattoo. You're going to hell too. Look, it says this. And they, they were like, what? So we actually kind of bonded in a weird kind of way. So I said, well, let's smoke a cigarette in our bathroom. So we all got in the bathroom and we're talking and we hear this knock, 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 knock. And I'm like, fuck. The psych tech comes in. He's like, you're busted. 
took my cigarettes, put them in the other room. And I, I, I knew what was going to happen the next day. I'm going to get in trouble. So I went up to the, uh, psych person and I, or the, uh, charge nurse the next day. And I said, look, this is what I did. Uh, I, I, I want to take my consequences. You know, they'll put me on assessment or whatever, and I'll be able to, you know, whatever, this is my punishment. Well, they decided to kick me out instead. And because uh, I was just one of those people they just didn't want to have to deal with, I think. But they kicked me out. And uh, I remember walking the, the long walk out of the place. And I was with this little old lady or a little small in stature woman that said, don't worry about it, honey. Just tell them that you want to kill yourself and they'll put you in the psych ward for three days and then you can come back. And I'm like, I don't want to kill myself. I want to live. That's why I'm here. And she looks at me, she winks and she says, no, honey, tell them that you want to kill yourself and they'll put you in the psych ward for three days and you can come back. And I'm like, no, I want to live. And I had this, this indignation. How dare you tell me that I should do something I don't want to do. And oh my gosh. And, and when they're doing my exit interview, they're like, so wink, do you want to hurt yourself? Or you, you feel like, hurting yourself and I'm like no I want to live I want to live and uh he goes okay and boop now I'm sitting in front of Sanford the shithole Sanford if anyone's from there I'm sorry um and I have in one hand uh the shirt that they cut off me in the hospital and my discharge papers and in the other hand, I have a bag with the Encyclopedia of Unusual Sex Practices, highlighted and autographed, uh, and my dead cell phone. And that is where I truly hit bottom. Um, I fell to my knees and I said, God or Buddha or Vishnu or whoever the fuck is up there, I cannot do this. I can't. Because I realized that the reason I was out in the street was my fault. I couldn't blame anybody. She gave me an out. And because of my little mouth and my little brain thinking that I was so uh, special and that you, it has to be different for me and how dare you, I knew at that moment that I was the one that had done that. And it all made crystal clear sense because I could look back at every decision that I made in my life and the common denominator and all the problems I had was me. And in most of those cases, with the exception of some of the abuse and all that kind of stuff, most of my troubles had my mouth and my head in the game. And I knew that left to my own devices, I couldn't do it. And I, long story short, I eventually called the person that was going to be my sponsor. I only had one phone number and he drove me. He drove all the way up uh, from Orlando to Sanford, picked me up, and uh, as he was driving me back, I'm telling him my woes. I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, they kicked me out, and how dare they kick me out because I want recovery, and it's not fair, and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, Mikey, can I, can I tell you something? I go, yeah. He goes, shut the fuck up. You are the most obnoxious uh, – what was the word he used? Um, obstinate, no, defiant. I was the most defiant person he had ever 
met. Um, and defiance is the number one characteristic of an alcoholic. And that's all you are. You're an alcoholic. And for some reason, he made a lot of sense. And I listened to him the entire way back and took in every word. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to find me a place to live. He's going to let me crash on his, on his couch. That didn't happen. He, sh- he pointed out bushes that were good. He's like, that one's near a radiator and there's a bush around it. So no one's going to bother you. And it's warm. It's loud, but it's warm. Sleep there tonight. Uh, I, I got my car back. It was a Jeep and uh, didn't have any sides. And this was in February. And that was the start of my recovery. And I want to change gears here. Um, I got sober in February of 2002. So 9-11 had just happened. And uh, this story is really for Jen. Uh, I uh, had an experience at a meeting that changed everything for me. 9-11 9-11 had just happened. I didn't give a shit about 9-11. I could have cared less. I was in the middle of my addiction. I didn't even watch the news until I think I had two years sober. And I told someone, you know, I never saw any of that, uh, that bullshit. Uh, now I respect it. But at the point, I didn't care. Anyway, 9-11 happened. Now it's February of 2002. I had about a few months and the anniversary of 9-11 happened and I went to a meeting in Kissimmee, Florida. And there was a guy there who a year ago was at Disney on a convention and the towers went down and his wife worked in the towers. And he couldn't get a phone call out. Uh, He couldn't call any of his family. Um, There was no planes, he couldn't leave uh, and he, knew his wife was dead. She was in that building when that thing went down. And he went to that meeting in Kissimmee and they showered him with love. They, they uh, just were there to support him. They took him for coffee after. Uh, and I'm in that meeting a year later and in walks that guy. And I, I get weepy here. Um, he said, Uh, At the beginning of the meeting, he stands up and he says, tells a story, and he says, I flew back here to be at this meeting today for the sole purpose of telling you that I didn't drink. And boy, if anyone wanted to drink, it was this guy. And he flew back just to tell those people that he didn't drink. And I'm thinking about all my problems and all the reasons that I relapse about, you know, I'd lost a job, I broke a nail, I, you know, whatever. And I, I listen to this guy and I'm like, there is no, there is no reason for me to ever drink again. There's no reason. I don't care how bad it gets. Um, there is just no reason to go back to that. And, and that kind of gave me my uh, real start on recovery. Um, I went to a lot of meetings. I got real involved in service. Um, I, I did things that there was something else that happened actually before that, uh, that 
well, after that, that kind of helped. I was going to this meeting. It was a gay and lesbian meeting that had no gays or lesbians at it. It was just created by a dude. Uh, and I was, I was, when I was in at the very beginning, uh, I had the homeless smell, that smell that it's not a bad smell. It's a, it's a, okay, this guy's homeless because he hasn't had a shower in a long time. He's living in the woods or whatever. I had that smell. I had the meth boom, 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 for like seven months. I was like still in that psychosis and I would bark at people. And I remember they had this one dude that uh, he shared about his wonderful day and how how wonderful his recovery was. And he spent the day with his kids at the park and it was wonderful. And they went around the room and I got to me and I go, I don't mean to say anything bad, but fuck you and your day. Fuck you and your shit kid. And I hope you fucking die because this is not, that's bullshit. I don't have days like that. Anyway, I threw chairs in meetings, but you know, as long as I didn't, I don't know why I didn't get banned, but uh, I remember being in that meeting and people would, uh, people would sit uh, or there'd be a chair with keys on it. Like someone was saving their seat. And then the meeting would go by and no one would sit in that chair. And then at the end, someone would come and get their keys because they just didn't want to sit next to me. Um, anyway, I was at the coffee bar and this guy, uh, straight dude, and I should say I was very heterophobic. Uh, I, uh, straight people have always been very, very mean to me. I stick out like a sore thumb and uh, straight people have been very mean to me my whole life and uh i didn't want to be around these people but i was i was willing to do anything at that point and i was standing at the coffee bar and he spilled coffee and i said eh, keep coming back and he thought that was funny because this guy's completely crazy and he just told him i just told him to keep coming back um he comes up and he says this is after about a month of me being there and he says hey we're uh we're all going to get something to eat and then go to a movie after. And I know you can't afford it. So I will buy if you want to come with us. And I immediately said, no, um, no, I've got something to do, which was sleep in my Jeep. Uh, I, I have, a, I have something I need to do. And I, I turned back and I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to go to a, a, be vulnerable like that. And I was, uh, I was at the coffee bar and I heard a voice in my head and it was a slogan that I had heard a hundred times. Uh, it was in my head. And I remember the first time I heard it was like in charter hospital and I'd heard it over the years and it was sing songy. It was like one of those keep coming back day at a time. But for some reason at that moment, it made perfect sense. And it was, if you always do what you have always done, which was run from those kind of things, then you will always get what you've always got, which was shit. And I knew at that moment that if I did not go with them to that movie, that I was not going to make it in AA. And I turned to him and I did the bravest thing I've ever done to this day. And I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, I'll go. And that person became my best friend uh, he, uh, died in a, uh, 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 drug relapse 
uh, several years later and it tore me apart. Um, but I started to make real friends in recovery. Um, I found a home group uh, and I found a good home group and uh, they loved me and I was the center of attention, which I love. And uh, I, I did their website for them. I, I, I did all this service and, uh, and it was a great, great, great life. One of the, one of the things that was uh, the most difficult for me to do was to go to this place called Central, which is all straight people. And they're, they're in there with their women, women, you know, all that kind of straight stuff that all straight people do, I guess. And uh, I didn't want to go. And uh, I had this sponsor, Kenny, that made me go. And he's like, just just walk in the door. And I would drive on the parking lot and I would I would get to the parking lot, but then I drive away. And then later I would I would get to the parking lot, but I would sit in my car and wait and then leave. And I did that over and over again. But every time I, I made a step, it was easier to do the step behind it. So I wasn't turning in and then leaving anymore. I was turning in and staying at the, at, in the parking lot. The turn in wasn't hard anymore. And then I got out of my car and smoked a cigarette and then got back in my car and left. And eventually I would drive in, get out of my car, smoke a cigarette and worry about getting to the door. And every time I did that, I would fail in my head, but what I was doing was learning and it was getting easier and easier. And eventually I got up to the door and I was going to turn around and leave and someone opened the door and they're like, Hey, come on in. And then I'm like, fuck. So I had to go in and, and then it was, it was easy. I would drive up and I would get out and I'd go to the door and I'd have a crappy time inside, but, but I was doing it. Those kind of life lessons kept happening. And I kept growing and, and really doing what I felt was what I was supposed to do, which is be in this program and give back somehow. Um, then something really fucked up happened. Excuse my language, but something really fucked up happened. I uh, went to uh, I, I, I went to a place in my psych uh, history. I had kind of a relapse with medication and I started hearing those voices again and I started uh, getting paranoid again. And all of my sober friends, they all took a step back and I wish some of them had stepped up, but the drama that happened in my life at that time started to get pretty pronounced. And I became that kind of, okay, what's going on with Mikey kind of thing. And they kind of stepped back and that hurt. So I went into what they call the desert years, which is when you hit about seven years, six or seven years and you decide, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I don't need meetings. You know, I, I'm sober now and I've had all these life lessons. I think I'll just go live my life. And I, I kind of disappeared for a couple of years and uh, I got into this hostage situation or relationship, however you want to call it. And I, I would, that was abusive. That was, it was a very, very dark time for me, but I was sober. The one thing I wouldn't do was relapse. I couldn't, I just, I just couldn't. Uh, but thinking of suicide uh, was an option. Uh, I'm not going to drink, but, uh, and if you've been along uh, around for a while, you'll have a hundred stories of people that have long-term sobriety and they don't quit, but they do kill themselves. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough.
Um, we, uh, I got to the point where uh, I was kind of ready to check out again. I had lost all my support, um, all my my meetings, all of that had just disappeared, and uh, I was I was a helium tank short of getting everything I needed in order to check out in a comfortable way. And uh, I remember going to a meeting at Central that I didn't know anyone. It was like a, a meeting time I never went to. And I heard all these people talk about their life and being great and how they work the steps. And I had worked the steps. I had done the, the, the job. I had done the, um, the work, the homework of the steps, but I never really uh, did the, the God steps because that didn't make sense to me. I, I would, it would be like, turn your will over to God. Okay. And I did what they told me to do. I would get down on my knees and I would talk to my bedspread every morning. And I would say, you know, please help me stay sober bedspread. And, and I would put my shoes under the bed. So I'd have to get down on my knees. I mean, I did all that but it just didn't make sense. And I, I, for some reason, wanted to try to work these steps in a way that I hadn't been able to before. And the, the principle behind the first step is honesty, and it's about self-honesty. And I started out by telling myself that I don't believe in God, and I can't do this honestly if I don't say that out front. If I don't start with that, I cannot do these steps. And that was the condition. So I had to work these in a way that worked for me. And I will, I will skip all of them except for two and three. Um, people say that they need a power that's greater than themselves. And you always hear things like, oh, you can have a doorknob uh, be your higher power. And I don't know why it's always a doorknob. And there's a joke. Uh, I use my doorknob as a higher power until it turned on me. <laughs> um, but there was all kinds of things that they would say, you know, nature is a power that's greater than yourself. Well, I don't know how nature is going to stop me from drinking. Uh, you know, the people in the rooms are a power that's greater than, than yourself. Well, I don't know when I'm alone, how I'm going, how that's going to keep me sober. I, I don't, I need some kind of magic being that's going to zap me into recovery. Uh, and I just didn't get it until um, someone, uh, okay, I, I'm going to tell a, a, a different story. Uh, oh, no, no. Okay. So I'm thinking of this power that's greater than myself and what can I plug into? And the first thing that came into my head was the law. Um, if I follow the law, which is absolutely a power that's greater than me, I mean, strip naked and run through downtown Orlando and you will go to jail. Uh, there's, no, there's no stopping that. Uh, that is a power that's greater than me. And if I follow the law, I probably won't get arrested. I probably won't get in trouble. So that was something that I could turn my will in my life over to. I could say, I'm going to follow the law from now on. Um, but I kind of expanded it, and this sounds funny, but uh, Google is a power that's greater than myself. And I, YouTube is a, is a power that's greater than myself. And I'll tell you how I used that. The very first time I used it was, uh, I, was I had a job at that point, and uh, I was still doing Goofy, and 
there was this thing where if people would roll up their sleeves and uh, it would look good, but when I rolled up my sleeves, they'd just fall down. And it just drove me crazy. It was one of those things I'd never been able to actually understand how people could do that. And it dawned on me that Google was a power that's greater than myself. And if I have a problem that I can't solve, then usually I'm the problem. So I went on YouTube and I looked up how to roll your sleeves up. And they said, if you roll them up like this and then roll them up, they'll stay. And I don't have that problem anymore, which sounds stupid. It sounds so dumb, but I don't have that problem anymore. And you would think that, okay, well, that's cute and everything. But when my aunt died, I looked up how to grieve. Uh, my aunt was everything to me, and I was having a real hard time with it. And I went on YouTube, and I went on TED Talks, and I learned how to grieve and do what I needed to do to, to, to get through that. Um, I've looked it up for public speaking when I'm nervous uh, about things like this. Um, I've, I've used that. Anytime I'm going through any kind of problem, I know that there is a solution out there. I know that if I talk to more than three people about a problem, I don't want a solution. I want attention. So I, that's my trigger. When I, when I have a problem that I can't solve, I go to Google, I go to YouTube, and I, I ask people, my sponsor, I, I get advice from him, and it's usually like make a list of shit you have to do. Um, Anyway, uh, I know it's like super late, but they said I could talk. Uh, um, I, uh, I, I, I ran into a part of my sobriety where I, I went back and I, I really grew from those steps. I really took them to heart. When I did my eighth and ninth step, when I did my fifth step, uh, I was brutally uh, honest to the point where I scared me. Uh, in fact, one of my sponsors relapsed during my fifth step and I had gotten through all the, I had gotten through all the, it was Christmas time and we took a break. I had gotten through everything except for my sexual inventory and I had to get a new sponsor. So my new sponsor did my sex inventory and where my previous sponsor was like, oh, I, you know, love and hugs and everything is wonderful. This new sponsor was from Brooklyn and he was not that person. And I would do my sex inventory and he would do things like, What? stop. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear that. Go, go do the next. No, no. Oh God. No, no. So uh, I, I had an experience like that. Anyway, um, I, I, uh, I mentioned in a meeting, uh, cause I had gone back to my home group and everything was great. And uh, I mentioned in a meeting that I was an atheist and I got that same cold shoulder again. Uh, but this was different. This was, uh, you know, people just stopped answering texts. They, they didn't come up to me after the meeting and ask where I wanted to go to eat. Uh, and I got kind of shunned by that. And I'm trying to get to the point where, oh my God, comes into fruition. I, I got pissed off enough that I did what most meetings, how most meetings start with a resentment. Uh, I got pissed off and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna start my own damn meeting. And uh, I started our mostly agnostic group of drunks. And that has been the highlight of my entire life. Um, I learned so much about working a program by being in a secular meeting. Um, it's, it's been amazing. Uh, one thing I learned about uh, spirituality, 
I had a problem with the word spirituality because spirit to me means ghost, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit or whatever. And I, uh, people say, oh, I'm spiritual. And I just wouldn't get it. And someone in the meeting, and I think he had like, I don't know, six months, three months said, well, it's, it's kind of like school spirit. Uh, when the team is doing great, everyone, you know, it's awesome and you, you, everyone cheers, but when the team is doing not great, everyone kind of rallies around them and says, it's okay, we're going to get it the next time. Uh, it's also like Christmas spirit, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's like when your drunk uncle comes to your door and wants to come in and he's all fucked up, and on any other day you'd send him packing, but because it's Christmas, come on in that feeling of goodwill, that feeling of wanting the best for someone for whatever reason is a spirit that I can get behind. So I don't have that problem of uh, people saying that they're spiritual because I understand what that really means. Uh, A lot of times they mean a a God that changes traffic lights so they can get to their dentist appointment. Uh, I know that that to me is really the spirit of uh, forgiveness. Those are things that are, are spiritual for me today. Um, I also uh, learned about um, the Lord's Prayer. In, in, in AA in South Florida, or in Florida, they end every meeting with the Lord's Prayer. And I would defiantly not say it. I would stand there and, and I'm, I'm not saying the, the prayer. And there was a girl that used to do it with me. And we, every time we do the Lord's prayer, we'd hold hands, but we'd, you know, give it the eye roll and Oh God. And, uh, they would say the prayer and, uh, we proudly would not say it. And then I looked over one time and, uh, I saw her saying the prayer and I went up to her after and I'm like, why, why did you say the prayer? And she kind of looks at me and she goes, my sponsor says that as a demonstration of my willingness to do anything to stay sober, I say the fucking words. I don't have to mean it. I don't have to believe it, but it's something that I do because I want to demonstrate my willingness to go to any length. And it immediately brought me back to the day that I said I was willing to do anything in order to stay sober. If you had handed me a bowl of feces and said, eat this with a spoon, at that moment, I would have dug in and held my nose and swallowed every bit because I was willing to do anything. And now I won't stand in a meeting and say a fucking poem. I can do that. And all of a sudden, the power of that disappeared. These are all things that I learned in in secular AA. And I would not be where I am today. I would not feel as as a part of things if I didn't have that. Um, This, you know, when they say uh, the promises or or they talk about being rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence, a lot of times I would think that's bullshit, but I learned how to meditate. Uh, I I had always, like on the 11th step, I had always heard, uh, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Uh, I, I left out the prayer and meditation, and I had never ventured into meditation. So I, I did what we do in AA. They say AA is spiritual kindergarten. I went outside of AA to learn how to meditate. And I went to this Buddhist uh, 
practice and I learned a secular way to meditate. And that has rocketed me into the fourth dimension of existence. And that fourth dimension is what is going on right now at this moment. I have an awareness of, of what is going on around me and I can change my attitude towards it. Uh, one of the things I learned is that I don't have to believe what I'm thinking. Uh, that's, some, that's, a, that's a skill that I wish I had had my whole life. I don't have to believe those negative thoughts. I do have a choice in how I look at things. And there's this great, uh, it's on our website in the member section, uh, the password is pickles. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie called, uh, or it's a short story called, uh, This is Water. And one of the things he talks about is, uh, they, they show this guy and uh, he's behind a, a, a big SUV and the SUV is taking up like three lanes and there's one person in it. And he tries to get around as this giant SUV and he gets all pissed. And so the narrator says, <clears throat> you know, it's possible that the person in that big SUV recently got into a giant car crash and their therapist all but ordered them to get a big sturdy vehicle so that they would feel like they could get on the road again. And while that's not likely what's going on, it is possible what's going on. And I have the choice of whether or not I, I feel that, uh, if that's how I look at things. Um, I don't have to follow my first thought. My first thought, as my sponsor points out, uh, is usually wrong. But there's a little space between my reaction and that first thought. And my job is to get that space a little bit wider so I can inject a little bit of serenity in there and a little bit of sobriety. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. I could talk all day about, uh, about recovery. It's, it's absolutely been the shit. Uh, I, will, I will end with one silly story about attitude. So I'm Tigger. And uh, I'm in Toontown and we are doing uh, something about characters is you can leave anytime you want. If you feel like shit uh, physically or emotionally, you can just say I'm shift releasing and they have a spare that will come in and do your job for you. It's great. So I'm, I'm just in a shitty mood. It's, it's been a long, it was a long night the night before. Uh, it, I was in recovery, but uh, uh, I was just in a crappy mood and I didn't want to be there and I was sore my body physically ached. My mind was tired. I was tired. And I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to shift release. So I go and I start packing my stuff up in my bag to take it across the thing so I could shift release. And someone comes into the room and says, oh, my God, Whoopi Goldberg is in the line. And boy, I changed my mind fast. I jumped into my I took that costume right out and I jumped in and I was like, "Woo, this is great. And it ended up she was in another line, so I never got to see her. But the rest of the day was actually very, very cool. And it wasn't until later that I realized the only thing that was different from me being miserable and in pain to being having just an amazing day was a thought. That was the only thing that changed that day was a thought. I might have something good happen in this next uh, set. I think I'll get into it. That blew me away. And that is one of the things that I think is the most impressive part of recovery is that I have a choice in how I think. And I am 
so grateful that you let me ramble on like this. Uh, thank you for my sobriety and I wish you all another happy 24. <laughs>